Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in February. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A recent article in the online magazine Yale Environment 360 is headlined, The West Great River Hits Its Limits. Will the Colorado Run Dry? Here's the subheadline: As the Southwest faces rapid growth and unrelenting drought, the Colorado River is in crisis with too many demands on its diminishing flow. Now those who depend on the river must confront the hard reality that their supply of the Colorado uh, water may be cut off. Yale Environment 360 is in the middle of publishing a five-part series on the Colorado River. Today we're going to talk with the author of that series, Jim Robbins. Jim Robbins is a veteran journalist based in Helena, Montana. He's written for the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, and numerous other publications. His latest book is The Wonder of Birds, What They Tell Us About the World, Ourselves, and a Better Future. Jim Robbins, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Very interesting series. Uh, parts one through four are out, and uh, part five, I'm, I'm sure, is coming out uh, very shortly. Um, I'd like to uh, start where you start in in the, this series. You go to the Headwaters, um, which is in Rocky Mountain National Park, right? Uh, and it's uh, starts very 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 small. In fact, at a certain point, you can you can jump over the Colorado River. That's right. Uh, you might get your feet wet. It's a little bit wide, but we did that, and uh, it's a little more than a trickle, especially in the fall. And up above the, the headwaters there is the very first diversion on the Colorado River. Water is taken, is caught from the Never Summer Mountains and then sent back over the divide to uh, to eastern Colorado. So right, right there is the first diversion. That's right. That's where it starts, and it doesn't quit until it gets down to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, so you've described Colorado River as the most engineered river in the in the U.S. in the world. I think it's the most engineered one of certainly the most engineered rivers in the world. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think uh, a lot of people know this is uh, the uh, the delta at the end used to be verdant and green, no longer right. The the water doesn't reach the sea. That's right. The the last piece in the series, which comes out next next week is about uh, how much nature we can expect from the Colorado, quote-unquote, nature. And probably the least natural part of it is that delta. We went down there, a photographer, Ted Wood, and I, and we flew over the delta. Then we we went by by car all the way along it and went to some places where projects are trying to bring back some flow. But but the vast majority of it, more than 95% of the of the Colorado River in Mexico is simply sand and trees. It's it's no longer a river. Once that water from the Colorado hits the border uh, in, U- in near Yuma, Arizona, it's the Mexican border. It's virtually all um, uh, taken for for farm crops, and barely a trickle makes it through the dam there. And uh, and after a couple miles, it disappears. So. Everything that was there before, from there's there's accounts from the the 30s and 40s, it was a paradise in a lot of ways. There were jaguars and uh, thousands of birds of different species, and a lot of different wildlife and um, uh, lots of different vegetation. But that's all gone now. That's all been been uh, that's all disappeared because the water has disappeared. Was there there's some emotional resonance to that, isn't there? This is sad, uh, and I guess if. If we're among the 40 million people who are using the Colorado River water, we're all culpable? Well, we're all culpable, I guess, if we know what we're 
doing. I mean, a lot of people have no clue about what's happened, where their water comes from, for one thing, and two, uh, uh, what the, what the cost of that has been. And so that's one of the points of the series is to say, hey, folks, this is what we've done to this this natural wonder, and if we don't pay attention to what's going on, we're going to make we might not make the right decisions in the future. Yeah, I learned a lot from the from the series, and I, you know, I, I pride myself on knowing a little bit about Colorado River, but uh, learned a lot of things. And I think that's indicative of uh, many of us. We use the water, and we're not totally aware of the big picture. Uh, maybe I have you talk about um, this this uh, paragraph from the from the series. Um, Experts have abandoned terms like concerned and worrisome and routinely use words like dire and scary. That'll get your attention. This is talking about a long term. We, we might be, some scientists say, we might be moving beyond the word drought to uh, just a, ch- a change in climate, m- much more arid. That's right. There, there are a number of researchers who believe that there was, we're, we're at, in the 19th year, going into the 20th year of a 20-year drought. Uh, it's the longest drought on record, uh, on tree ring record, since 1250, which is the Middle Ages. And uh, it's also the most severe of, of those droughts. And um, the last 19 years have been equivalent to the hottest 19 years of that drought in the Middle Ages, which occurred, uh, uh, was a 60 years long. So there's a lot to be worried about. And what researchers think is that uh, rather than just a drought, this might be part of a long-term trend that isn't going to go away. Uh, it's called aridification. Uh, it means that things are getting more arid in the in the Southwest, and um, it might be something that's permanent, a permanent state change, and it won't stop. One researcher told me until until we stop warming the atmosphere. That was his take on it. So, yeah, there's a lot to be really deeply concerned about. I want to loop back and look at the infrastructure, but but another alarming um, element, um, a, a, I can't remember how it's described, uh, officials, federal officials, uh, might be getting closer to declaring a, a crisis point? That's right. If It depends in part on how much snow Colorado gets. I mean, all eyes are on Colorado these days. If they have a big snow year and there's more than average, then it might hold off an emergency decoration till the next year, um, or or not. I mean, if things uh, are average or below average, and then we could see a crisis this year. They're scrambling to avoid that declaration of a of a crisis. Uh, there's a series of different steps to that crisis because no one really knows what's going to happen after the crisis is declared. We've never been in this territory before. So uh, they are doing, they have just passed something called the drought contingency plan. And that is a, a plan to keep more water in Lake Mead. Lake Mead is the, is the, it's the level. If it's, if the, if it goes too low, that will trigger the crisis. It's measured a feet above sea level. And if it, if it hits the, the right step, boom, then they declare a crisis. So they're trying to keep water in Lake Mead by using less and coming to a voluntary agreement to use less and avoiding that, that declaration. And um, so far that's worked, but it's very close. It's, it's, it's within several feet of the emergency. And, and um, if it goes below that, that, 
that marker this year, they will declare a Tier 1 emergency. Uh, and I was going to ask you, what does that mean? I guess we haven't been here, so we don't fully know what it means. Well, we don't know what it means, but it means, one for one, Arizona will lose the most because Arizona is a jun- the junior user in the lower basin. The lower basin is Arizona, California, and um, Nevada, and the upper basin are the other uh, states, the other um, Colorado River states, including Utah. And uh, the, the lower basin states use more water than they're entitled to because of loss of water through evaporation and Lake Mead and, and overuse. So they'll, they're the ones that will have to take the haircut first. And Arizona is the most junior of those three states. So they will lose, the farmers of, of Arizona will lose because they use a lot of the water, and they're, they're junior users in Arizona. So we know that there will be cutbacks, and Phoenix could lose water and uh, Tucson and so on. But uh, they're trying to keep that from happening by giving it up voluntarily rather than having that imposed upon them by the federal government, which is what would happen if there were a Tier 1 emergency. And there are, I uh, understand, Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3. There, there are uh, these declarations that are have been delineated, but I guess we hopefully we won't get to. Uh, you know, right, escalating, yeah. and then tiers. and then beyond tier three, there's Deadpool. I don't know if you saw that in the story. Yeah, yeah, yes, which is which is scary. <laughs> Dead. Tell us what Deadpool is. Deadpool is when the water level in Lake Mead gets so low that that it stops leaving the lake that it can't it can't get out any longer. It can't generate power over Hoover Dam because it no longer reaches the spillway. It can't be piped out to to uh, Arizona and California because it, it doesn't reach the pipes anymore. Now, it will still go to to Nevada because Nevada just put what's called the third straw into the into Lake Mead. They had a straw that, that went into Lake Mead to take water out. The water level dropped below that, so they put a second straw in. The water level dropped below that. They finally just finished a couple years ago a third straw at the very bottom like a bathtub drain to allow water even if the lake drops to Deadpool, to keep coming out and to keep um, uh, providing Las Vegas with water. Las Vegas gets about 90% of its water from the Colorado River, from Lake Mead. So they're ve- they were very worried about this, and so that's why they went and spent a billion and a half dollars for the third straw. Hmm. The, where is it now? I think it's what, around 40% Lake Mead? Yeah, for, yeah 40-some percent, mm-hmm. right. And And so far... Uh, I, I mentioned all eyes are on Colorado. So far, the snow year in Colorado looks pretty close to normal uh, in, in most places. And the southern, because of the El Nino weather pattern, the southern um, um, Rocky Mountains are also getting above average snow. So that looks good for the Rio Grande. The Colorado is known as the, the mother of rivers because it, it provides snow for so many rivers. And as the water diminishes, all the rivers are, are in trouble these days. The Rio Grande had one of the worst years on record last year because of the decline in snow. Hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, where does Lake Powell fit into this? I guess Lake Lake Mead is critical for Arizona, you said. And uh, um, where does Lake Powell fit? Well, Lake Powell is important for generating electricity, and a lot of the money goes to, to projects along the, the river for restoration and endangered species. Um so, and then Lake Powell is being used to prop up Lake Mead. So there's been a real effort by water users in the upper basin, Colorado and Utah and Wyoming, to keep water in Lake Powell 
so that it can be used by Lake Mead to keep the levels up. So it's a little bit complicated, but um, it too is dropping. It's almost, I think, half full, and it's also in trouble. Um, we're right on the edge of a declaration, both with Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Now, there's some talk, some people have proposed allowing Lake Powell to to fall and just keeping Lake Mead full. It's kind of an emergency measure, but I, I don't think that's going to go anywhere, at least not in the near term. Depends on how bad things get, and whether whether it snows big time in the next few years or not. That's really the key to all of this. Um, how much would it take? I imagine there'd be have to be several years, many years of either you know normal or above average snowpack for for this problem to be reversed. Yeah, there's some people who say Lake Lake Mead will never be full again um, because it, it just there just could never be enough water. Uh, to fill it up. One of the one of the big interesting things about Lake Mead is no one figured in uh, how much evaporation takes place when they allotted the water to uh, to the lower basin states, and uh, it's huge, and it's more than than, Col- than Las Vegas gets for its water supply in one year because it's so big. It's 120 miles long, a lot of surface area, and so a lot of water is out take is, is evaporates out of of Lake Mead, and then plants. Uh, that didn't figure in how much water plants take up. Uh, and it, both those figures together is really what's driven the water in the lower basin into a deficit, mm-hmm. deficit uh, use. And then there's a lot of sediment builds up in those reservoirs, doesn't it? Yeah, behind the dams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm not, I don't think that really has anything to do with supply, but it is a problem. At some point, they're going to have to go in and clean it out. Uh, in fact, uh, you write that uh, Colorado does have sediment in it. Too thick to drink, too thin to plow is the adage. Yeah, especially in, in the Red Rock country as it goes through Utah and, and um, Arizona. And uh, it is until it hits the dams. And what happens when it hits the dams is that uh, they release cold water out the bottom of the dam. It totally changes the ecology of the rivers because... Um, a lot of the fisheries in the Colorado River are adapted to to high flows and then to low flows. So it was a classic flashy river is what they're called, flash floods and then drying in the summer and then, then flooding again. And so a lot of these fish in there, and some of these fish are, you know, six, seven feet long or were, and uh, they adapted to those extremes. But now the flow is pretty continuous. So a lot of the fisheries, the native fisheries, have been hurt. Uh, deeply by the change in ecology. But below the dams, where they release a lot of cold water because the, the water comes from deep in the in the bottom of the river above the dam, there's trout. And trout are not native, but for 15 miles or so below these dams, there's non-native trout that thrive and uh, at the expense of the native fisheries here. And, and some of the native fish in the Colorado River were found nowhere else. They're very unusual fish, and they were found nowhere else in the world. So there's a real effort all along the Colorado to try and keep these native fish from disappearing. Well, we'll go to break here soon. When we come back, I want to talk about how uh, how this uh, most engineered, one of the most engineered rivers in the world is engineered and, and why. And the 40 million people served uh, by the Colorado River and some very uh, serious problems. Uh, experts, uh, just to review, are... Uh, going from using words like concerned and worrisome to dire and uh, and scary. 
Um, so we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Let's go to break now. Uh, you can join this conversation. Hope that you will with your question or comment about the Colorado River. Um, and uh, well, let's go first to a caller. Let's go to Carl in uh, St. George uh, before we go to break. Uh, Carl, uh, thanks for calling. Go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. We're here in St. George, and there's a growing issue of this Lake Powell pipeline. Used to be talked about in terms of millions and millions, now it's up to billions. And they're just moving ahead with this with all gusto. And uh, what's going to happen when they get this in and uh, there's no water to speak of? I guess southern Utah and Nevada and so on have an allocation of the Colorado River. But uh, what? How's, how's this drought and the lowering of the lake going to affect this pipeline that, uh, like I say, there's a real controversy of the price of water, just uh, where the water's going to come from. Okay, good good point. Uh, thanks for raising that, uh, Carl. Um, Jim Robbins, what about this uh, proposed Lake Powell pipeline? I looked into that, actually, for the piece. I went to Lake Powell, or to uh, St. George, and talked to people there, and didn't make it into the final uh, edit of the series, but um, it, it's very interesting. Um, and what's going, what I think is going on after talking to people there is that there's a group called the Colorado River Research Group, and they, and they have said that there's not enough water left in the river. There should be what they what they say, no new straws dipped into the river. Um, so yet this Lake Powell pipeline, uh, which would, uh, I can't remember the amount, which take a fair amount of water out of the river and pipe it, many miles to, to St. George, has become very controversial because uh, the water isn't going to be there in the future or could not be there in the future. But what's going on is that the lower basin states, like uh, Arizona and California, have have all the water that they're entitled to, but the upper basin states don't, Colorado, Utah especially. Uh, and so there's an effort by some in the upper basin to get, even though there's not enough water left in the river, to get their share, and that's what's driving the whole Utah project for St. George. So uh, it's going to be a scramble, but it's not it's not a done deal. It's, uh, it's become controversial because of the cost. I think it's something like $2 billion uh, eventually would, is what the pipeline would cost to build. And uh, and there are some people looking at it uh, from, from that point of view, saying, you know, this is not something we want to commit the taxpayers of, of St. George to. Uh, to, to paying for, because the water might not be there in the future. Uh, Carl, thank you. Thank you for bringing that, that up. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, straws. Uh, again, before we go to break, um, the upper states uh, have what we call paper water, right? They, they still have some water they're not right. using, but um, I, I think there's pressure on the upper states to, to not actually use that. That's right. That's right. They're saying what, what the experts, some experts are saying is, look, we can't take any more water out of the river from a practical point of view. However, from a rights point of view, these states still are entitled to water. They still are entitled to a lot of water. So there's an, there, so what, what I've been told is that um, people know this, the experts know this, but when, when um, government officials come back to their local uh, constituencies, they say, "Well, wait a minute. We have we have rights to this water. We want it, and uh, and there's a lot of demand then to 
to to continue claiming water from the Colorado River. And so they, they end up doing that to please their constituencies. So there's a lot of push and pull going on with with apportionment of, of the Colorado River still, even though, as, you, as, as we've established, things are dire and scary. So where this goes remains to be seen. Yale Environment 360, an online magazine, is in the middle of publishing a five-part series on the Colorado River. Uh, the first uh, of those articles is titled, The West Great River Hits Its Limits. Will the Colorado Run Dry? We're talking with the author of the series, Jim Robbins. More following this break. I'm Tom Williams. With our One Small Step project, we're recording meaningful, respectful conversations between people who hold different political and cultural beliefs. We're seeking participants to join us. You can find out more by going to our website, upr.org. Click on One Small Step. UPR News Director Danny Hayes and I will be in Blanding and Moab this week. and We'd love to have you come and learn more about One Small Step at a breakfast reception event, 7 to 9 a.m. on Friday in Moab at the USU Moab campus. Hope to see you there. Did you know that researchers are developing apps to help with depression? Studies have found that online programs can help people learn acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which has been proven to help with a variety of mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. People who are unsure about starting therapy can first learn ACT skills using an online program and then progress to therapy sessions. The ACT model teaches skills that can be applied in a variety of ways, such as mindfulness, time management, and handling challenging emotions. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in February. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we're talking with Jim Robbins. He's a veteran journalist based in Helena, Montana. He's written for New York Times, Condonest Traveler, numerous other publications. His latest book is The Wonder of Birds, what they tell us about the world, ourselves, and a better future. He's author of a new five-part series on the Colorado River being published by Yale Environment 360, an online uh, magazine. You're welcome to join this conversation. We're talking about the Colorado River, and uh, of course we are in one of the Colorado River states. Colorado River flows through parts of Utah, uh, directly affected, of course. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 800-826-1495. Would love to get your question or comment. You can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. So, Jim Robbins, I wonder if you could um, maybe elaborate on how the Colorado River is one of the most engineered rivers uh, in the the world, I guess um, at least early on, I imagine agriculture would have driven this. Agriculture was the first uh, water user to come to the West. The Homestead Act brought a lot of people out. One of the places I visited was uh, was Grand Junction, Colorado. It's kind of a classic place uh, as far as agriculture and irrigation goes. They um, they uh, utilize, uh, with a large canal, they use a lot of Colorado River water to grow peaches and palisades, Colorado. They grow a lot of wine grapes and uh, and things like that. And um, they're also one of the areas that's worried about 
about um, their water, even though they're senior water users. And when you when the first people who came to the West and, and staked a claim for the water are the people who get that water first. So a lot of the cities, which didn't need water in those days, or a lot of water, are junior users, so they'll get the water last. And they're concerned about that, because as the river dries up, they, they might not have enough water. But the senior users, like agriculture, their water is very inexpensive, and uh, they're worried that there could be a change in the law so that the water that they're using now is taken away from them and, and delivered to cities, or that it's sold up to the highest bidder, which would end a lot of uh, agricultural efforts in the West. Eighty percent of the water in the West is in, on the Colorado is used by agriculture, and a lot of it's used to grow alfalfa, which is a low-value crop. And so, there's an, there's as water gets scarcer and scarcer, there's going to be a raid on a lot of that water, one way or another, either either through willing sellers or through. Uh, through a market that, that simply values it higher, and, and, and so it leaves it leaves farmland. But that's a big element of the discussion that's going on now: is how that will take place. This this has been, it is, and it will be, maybe even more so, very political, right? It's it's the power. Uh, so that's, I guess, why uh, agriculture users are worried. They have the senior rights, but uh, there are fewer in numbers. That's right. They have the senior rights, but their water, but they don't. Their water is very inexpensive to them. They might pay, you know, uh, I don't know exactly the exact amount. Uh, we didn't figure it this way, but it's a tenth, say, of what the water sells for on the open market. And so, if someone comes to a farm to farm country like the area near Grand Junction and says, "We'll give you ten times what your your water is worth now," well, people are going to sell, and then it leads to something called buy and dry where farms are bought, the water is separated from the farms and sent to cities, and these, these once prosperous peach farms or alfalfa farms or whatever they are, are simply let, let, let go, and they become wheat, wheat patches. That's happened in places along the Colorado, but especially along the South Platte, where, where the city of Denver and some of the front-range cities have, have uh, bought water and then simply let the farms go, go back to weeds. Uh, so... Worst case scenarios. What are what are uh, I guess agriculture producers worried about? Eighty uh, percent of the water goes to agriculture. Uh, if there's a big shift, that it could be a massive uh, reduction in agriculture oper- operations, right? Yeah, I mean that's the concern. Is a lot of these farm farm towns, these places like like Grand Junction and uh, and even all along the Colorado River. Uh, that even in Arizona, some of the big uh, industrial-sized agricultural um, uh, businesses will will simply the water will become so valuable that they'll sell it and that they won't be growing crops anymore. Um, that's happening in the Imperial Irrigation District. That's the largest user of Colorado River water on the Colorado, and um, they are selling some of that water. They're, they're conserving it now, which means they're using trickle irrigation and so on rather than flood irrigation to use less water, and they're selling it to San Diego and, and Los Angeles. But if that water becomes more valuable, well, they just may retire the farms and sell it off uh, uh, because the water is worth so much money. You write that uh, speculators are quietly buying up farms with water rights, holding them for the day that the price of water soars. So speculation is I guess we could have predicted this with uh, with commodities so valuable, but it's happening. 
That's part of it. I mean, there's not a lot of that on the Colorado River right now. There's some of it. There's more on other rivers. And I talked to one water marketer the other day who told me that in some ways it's a good thing because a lot of farmers haven't paid much attention. Their water has always been close to close to free. I mean, they have to pay for delivery and so on, but they, they get the water basically for, for a little cost. And now what's happening is their water is being valued. It's called price discovery. And so all of a sudden, people who didn't pay much attention to what their water is worth are now saying, hey, I've got a valuable commodity here. Maybe I should use less and sell some to Phoenix or wherever um, so that um, uh, I can make more money. And so there's a market that's developing for water. And uh, part of that, he, this this fellow I talked to said, he said, vulture capitalists, he said, are like vultures in the ecosystem. He said, no one really, really likes them, um, but they play an important role. So, uh, That's an interesting take, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Vultures are needed in in the nature, right? So... Um, That's right. They they can they can uh, recycle carcasses that that other birds can't, which is something I've written about in my bird book. So yeah, um, I, I want to stay on pricing. Um, you, you hear the idea floated uh, from time to time that uh, government perhaps should uh, should step in and uh, and change the pricing structure. That if we, uh, you know, agriculture residential users, if we actually were um, charged um, a different price. We would a, we would conserve. We would value it. It would change the uh, it would change how we look at water. That's right, and and that that actually has happened. And Phoenix is the prime example of that. Today's story is about Phoenix and what they're doing to try and solve the problem uh, of of less Colorado Colorado River water. They're t- trying to totally. Uh, replace the amount of water they get from the Colorado River because they don't think it because they think it might not be there in coming years. They've got about four years, according to to Catherine Sorensen, who is the head of uh, Phoenix Water. And uh, after that, she says that's when Deadpool could hit. So Deadpool might not be that far away. No water gets out and comes to Phoenix. So what are they going to do? So one of the big one of their elements of their of their plan is to increase the price of water so that people can serve, and that's that's happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the, so people have zero escapes. I don't know if they do that in Utah yet, but in Arizona, it's it's it, the the switch from lush lawns over to desert landscaping for a front lawn has been huge, and it's saved a lot of water. And so. Uh, people have have been forced by the cost of water to to uh, use less, and of course, lawns are one of the biggest consumers of of water. So it, it's made a huge difference in how in the demand for water in Phoenix. I, I haven't personally haven't seen a whole lot of xeriscaping going on lately, um, but yeah, I'll throw that out to listeners. Have, have, are you xeriscaping your uh, yard? What would you do for for conservation? Uh, so I want to talk about uh, this very interesting article, um, and uh, Phoenix is one of those uh, poster childs, right, for what the heck is this uh, large city doing in the middle of the desert and the, and the strain on, right. on water. Uh, Catherine Sorensen, director of the water services there, uh, this is her quote in your article, I can survive Deadpool for generations, she says. That's right. So what, what that story is about today is about how Phoenix is coping with the loss of Colorado River water. 
And what, what they're doing is, of course, I mentioned the xeriscaping and, and conservation. Uh, they're, they're firming up the waters that they get from other places like the Salt River, which is important to them. There's four reservoirs there along the Salt River. Um, and they've stored water. They've stored water. What they do is they, they've been piping Colorado River water into these um, infiltration ponds, are called, that sit above aquifers that are empty or par- partially empty. And then this water trickles through these infiltration ponds or infiltrates into these aquifers. So they've been storing water underground for years. They've got a Arizona has a couple years supply of water that they've stored in these in these aquifers underground uh, against the day that the Colorado River goes dry. And they have um, uh, done things uh, about, they've recycled a lot of their water. They, a lot of the water that's recycled in Phoenix is used in the Palo Verde nuclear power plant just outside of Phoenix for cooling. That's been doing that for a long time. And they're looking at, at um, a future of, of, of recyc- more recycling and of, of even things like what's called toilet-to-tap technology, that water uh, that comes out of toilets will someday be recycled for drinking water. And that's being done in some places in Texas and I think in San Diego. Uh, the the, in, the filtration is so intense and, and uh, the technology is there now to render that water clean again if you can if you can sell it to consumers. So those are the kind of things they're looking at. And they have, they claim to have decoupled growth from water. So that their their conservation measures are so great that they no longer need a, a, an increasing water supply to keep growing. That they can, uh, she, Catherine Sorensen told me that they have grown by 400,000 people in the last 20 years without any additional water supplies to for that growth. They're using the same amount that they were. So, so they claim to be decoupling, and and that's a region wide trend. Las Vegas has a very effective, uh, highly regarded conservation system to use less water and uh, to decouple. And uh, decoupling is the, is the byword. Albuquerque is the same thing. So it's happening. And uh, the, the, the claim that, that these cities are uh, need, you know, this is slurping up all this water to keep growing is, is, is being challenged by these cities who claim that they've in some ways solved the problem. I want to return to conservation and this decoupling, but we have uh, we had a caller um, from St. George. Chris in St. George had this question. I want to uh, treat this right now. Uh, Chris asks, um, why desalinization isn't a larger part of these conversations? He notes that California uses a ton of water and is right next to the ocean. That's right. That's a very good question, by the way. Um, it will be in the future of Arizona. There's a lot of brackish water uh, in Arizona in aquifers. Um, they could get water from the Gulf of California and pipe it in. <clears throat> the problem with and actually Santa Barbara has a desal plant that they use to for drinking water. The problems with and and oh I should mention Israel also has something like thirty or forty desalinization plants that they use to for fresh water because they're in the desert there. The problem with desalinization or the problems of are one that uh, it's expensive because it requires a lot of energy to be to force uh, salt water through filters, and um, 
it, so it's it's an expensive process. But two, it's also a lot of waste is created in the in the stuff that's, that's stripped out of the of the ocean water, and it has its brine and and minerals and so on, and it has to be disposed of. So it, it's not without problems, and uh, it's it's something that people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, but it it still has these problems. Oh, the other the other uh, problem is that it sucking the water in from the ocean and then sending the water back out is hard on on ocean life. So interesting, interesting. So some problems with it, although it is being wrapped up in in some places. Um, let's go to break. When we come back, I want to talk more about conservation and the structural problems and uh, and more about the solutions. Um, you talked to the water manager there in Phoenix and some other other people as well. I wanted to get to talking about uh, nature as well. Uh, you said you'd focus on nature in the last part of the series, right? Which is coming out. That's right. Uh, soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are talking with um, Jim Robbins. He's author of a, a new five-part series from uh, is being published in Yale Environment 360. That's an online magazine. It's all about the Colorado River, about water uh, problems in the West. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. And the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education Farm Bureau Young Farmers and Ranchers Club helps students become impactful leaders, develop personal growth, and expand their opportunities in agriculture. Today is Thursday, May 30th, and these are the upcoming events on the UPR community calendar. The Leonardo Thought Exchange on Biomimicry is tonight at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City at 7 o'clock. This weekend features the Ogden Music Festival at Fort Buenaventura in Ogden. Visit OFOAM.org to see the artist lineup of musical performances Friday through Sunday. This is the last week of the Making Sense of Archaeology, Learning Through Independence exhibit at the Prehistoric Museum at USU Eastern in Price. Check it out before its final exhibition on Saturday, June 1st. Add your events to the community calendar by visiting our website at upr.org community calendar. And stay connected with us on social media using the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening to Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in February. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Jim Robbins. Uh, he is author of a five-part series now being published in the online magazine Yale Environment 360. The headline for the first article is The West Great River Hits Its Limits. Will the Colorado Run Dry? And we've been talking about various aspects of the Colorado River and uh, water in the West. You're welcome to join the conversation. Hope that you will with your perspective. Uh, love to know what you're doing uh, personally, water conservation. Are you zero escaping or what are you doing? And uh, if perhaps you have a, a question for our guest, you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Um, 
So, uh, Jim Robbins, uh, this caught my uh, attention. This is in the fourth article. You're, you're talking about Phoenix here. And um, you're right, all of these well-intentioned measures, talking about conservation measures and other measures, may fall far short of being able to cope with a full-blown climate crisis. And again, earlier in the hour, we, we talked about how some scientists are saying we're, we're moving beyond drought. We're, we're hitting a new uh, era of the climate, which is going to be much drier in the future. That's right. It, it, it's a long-term aridification. That's what they're saying. It, it's possible. They're not saying it's happened yet, but there is some science to show that. I think one of the more interesting things about this story is the tree ring uh, studies that have been done. I went to the, the tree ring lab at the University of Arizona, and they reconstruct climate in the past uh, to look at, at what, compare it to what we're in now. And it's very interesting stuff. It's, it's really a very thorough record. One of the interesting things is that, that um, they said that the water in the Colorado was apportioned um, when we were in what's called a pluvial period, and that's 15 or 20 years of very rainy weather. So the first apportionment of the Colorado was based on a, a, an anomaly in the temperature, or excuse me, in the precipitation records. So, um, but what they're seeing now is that that the temperature, or that, excuse me, the the um, weather is, the climate is drier than it ever has been in the past 2,000 years. Um, and that's that's what's concerning to people. It's mm-hmm. it's this record of tree rings and the, and the increasing amount of information they're able to get out of them that's really got people alarmed. And, of course, the, the models of, of, of climate change that are predicted, and it's happening. It, it, it seems to be following that. Of course, we won't know until we get there, to the future, that is, but uh, the, there is enough data in in these different sources to, to say that this is what appears to be happening. I want to quote from this. This is the, the number four in the series. This is uh, about Arizona. Um, quoting my guest, Jim uh, Robbins. Meanwhile, the so-called Sun Corridor, you write, 120 miles of Sonoran Desert between Phoenix and Tucson, is seen as the state's next burgeoning megalopolis. It's one of the fastest-growing regions in the country. Its population more than 5.5 million. Anchored by Phoenix in the northwest, Tucson to the southeast is expected to double by 2040. You go on to say, uh, what about the water for this growth? Under state law, a developer must prove that he has a 100-year supply for any new housing uh, development. That brings me to my next question. I mean, this is wonderful. Uh, uh, Managers in Arizona say they have decoupled growth from water and ramped up conservation measures. Uh, the Phoenix manager says that uh, they're in Phoenix, so they can uh, they can survive Deadpool in Lake Mead uh, for what a generation or, or two. But at at some point, if you keep uh, putting people in the desert, um, can we conserve our way out of out of problems? Right. So there's an important distinction to be made here, and you hit the nail on the head when you asked about that because. City of Phoenix is not the same as as metropolitan Phoenix. So the city of Phoenix has decoupled or claim they have decoupled water from growth, but there are other places that haven't, and they don't have the the the, the requirements on zero zero scaping and the water storage and so on. They're still getting a, a developer has to has to prove that they have a hundred years of water in order to build a subdivision. And that usually comes from from groundwater. But a lot of these aquifers have been pumped partially dry. And so th- they have gone to this, this agency called CAGRID, the Central Arizona Recharge 
something or other, but it, it's an agency charged with getting water and bringing it to these to these uh, subdivisions and pumping the aquifers full so that there's a hundred year supply. Well, a lot of that water has come from the Colorado River, and uh, that's that's at risk in in this this drying of the West. Um, what has stepped in to save them is the, the water that some of the tribes have. The, the, the Indian tribes of the Southwest are, are sitting in a pretty enviable uh, seat right now and, and play an important role because they haven't developed a lot of their water, and so they have a, they have senior water rights and lots of it, and they are selling it to to these uh, agencies to make up for the loss of of Colorado River water, a potential loss, and so what happened uh, most recently with with CAGRID, as it's called, was they bought water from the um, Gila River Indian community, and quite a bit of it, to to fill these aquifers and to keep things moving along. But at some point, the Colorado River water that they've depended on might not be there for some of these areas outside of metropolitan Phoenix. Uh, at some point, will we will we get to extreme measures? You can't move here kind of a thing? Um, well, I think that, you know, of course, no one knows. Catherine, if you look, by the way, I want to say that some of the photos in this series are really nice and stunning, even. And there's a photo of Catherine Sorensen from from the Phoenix Water Department with her crystal ball. Someone gave her as a joke. Yeah, that was, that was a good one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so who knows? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that they're... There is potential for that. If Deadpool happens, yes, then I think that there there, there will be a, a point at which people say you can't move here anymore. But for the time being, uh, having decoupled in, in, in these places from growth, the, the, the growth continues apace. I mean, Bill, I mentioned in the story, Bill Gates, the Microsoft uh, wizard, is talking about building a smart community for 25,000 people outside of, of Phoenix. And there are other proposals for giant housing development. So, um, you know, at this point, it's it's full steam ahead. Uh, we'll see. Uh, by the way, you write, the needs of fish, wildlife, and native flora have always been at the bottom of the priority list. You do write about this. What are uh, people, and there are people working on this, right? Uh, what what are they saying with uh, with, with the, this very engineered um, river? Um, there are at least... Um, there are attempts, I think, and uh, wishes to, to to restore these parts of the river to to help with with uh, with nature. Well, the the next the fifth part of the series, which will come out next week, is deals with that. And um, there is, I have to say, an encouraging effort, especially by the Nature Conservancy, to to return uh, to heal or rehabilitate many of the tributaries of the Colorado and the Colorado River itself. They their priority is one is to keep farmers on the land and two to restore nature. Do those both of those things. So what they're doing is in places like the Verde River in Arizona is they're putting in uh headgates uh for irrigation that divert water for irrigation that are highly efficient so that excess water isn't taken out of the river and there's still in stream flow. Uh, they're planting new trees along the river to uh, to keep uh, uh, 
habitat for wildlife along the stream. There's a whole number of kind of small things that they're doing that for some of these desert rivers, which have low flows but are really important, uh, are, are working. Um, 90% of the biodiversity in, uh, along these desert rivers uh, lives within a mile of the river. And so if you can keep a flow in the river, uh, they're like an oasis, and they're really important. And, and that's one of the things that's happening. I'm really, I was really uh, impressed with the efforts of the Nature Conservancy and its partners all along the, the uh, Colorado River Basin to, to keep nature on the land and intact. So there's good efforts uh, like that. And then there's a group called Raise the River in the Colorado River Delta that is um, uh, working to restore the, the the river of sand down there. And they have. And there's some great photos of that in the next piece. Eight miles or so of river is being is being protected. So, uh, We do have, uh, just have uh, about three minutes left in the program. We have uh, caller. Uh, Steve in Cedar City has uh, joined us. Steve, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. This is more concerning water for the Southwest. In 1950, we had a senator from Utah who preliminarily with other people had had preliminary plans for bringing Columbia River water down from the south or from the northwest. Billions of gallons of that fresh water empties into the ocean, I guess, every every day. And they the plans were dropped because he was proposing nuclear energy in the fifties to dig that canal. Uh now, with the size of equipment that they have, why isn't anybody looking at building a big open-air canal, maybe 200 feet across and 30 feet deep from the Columbia River and bringing that water down through the western side of Idaho and the western side of Nevada and empty eventually into the Colorado to serve the whole southwest? What's wrong with somebody looking at that uh, proposition? Well, I would say the first thing that's wrong with that is, is somebody owns that water. Uh, there are water rights all on the Columbia, and a lot of it's in stream. Tribes have their rights, the farmers, and so on. So I don't, I don't know how much, I don't know how it's apportioned or how much extra there is, but it would be, I think, a monumental effort to, to try and pry some of that water away from the Columbia River, even though it seems to be uh, overflowing in, in places with a lot of water compared to the Colorado. Um, there's been talk of pipelines to the Great Lakes, too, but I think those kinds of ideas are, are far off compared to the things that can be done in the near future. And, and a, a big part of what can be done in the near future is to take some of the water from agriculture, which uses, again, 80% of the, uh, of the water on the Colorado, and, and a third of that is for alfalfa to feed cattle. So I think a... a um, Conservation amongst uh, farmers, um, giving them more water-efficient technology, which is what's happening in, in the Verde River I mentioned, and allowing that water to keep flowing and, and, and reimbursing them for that or paying them for that. Those kinds of things, have, there's a big role for that yet to come to free up water on the Colorado. Uh, whether that can be enough, we'll see. It really depends on how bad the drought gets. One of the things I was told at the tree ring lab in, in Arizona is that two of the hottest years on the Colorado River in the last 1,250 years have been in the last 10 years. So things are getting hotter and drier, and that's that's the alarm. So things can ha- could happen a lot faster than 
then we can adapt to them. That's the concern. Uh, Steve, thanks, thanks for that. And uh, that we, who knows? Looking at that crystal ball, things get uh, dire enough. Uh, a project like uh, diverting water from Columbia might uh, it might gain steam. Uh, so we just have a minute left, um, Jim Robbins. What's what's your what's your takeaway? What what do you hope people take away from these articles? I my big hope is that people pay attention. I mean, my whole a lot of my career is saying, hey, folks. We, we live in this amazing world, and whether it's birds or trees, which I've written about two books about, or whether it's the Colorado River, we live in this amazing world. Nature is all around us, and it's incredible. We need to kind of step outside and pay attention to what it, what's out there and what we're doing to it. And I would say the same with the Colorado River. We need to kind of we need to we need to understand. Uh, I think if you ask most people in downtown Phoenix where their water comes from, they couldn't tell you. But I think we need to kind of step up and and own our our impact on the world and 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 teach ourselves more about where the things that keep us alive and sustain us come from. Well, very interesting series of articles. Uh, four of those articles in the five part series are out, and uh, the the article about about nature. Um, the fifth in the series is coming out soon. Uh, this is in Yale Environment 360, an online magazine, and uh, Jim Robbins is the author of this series on the Colorado River. Jim Robbins, uh, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Tom, for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. UPR is everywhere you are, with classical music programming, news and information, statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app, UPR is only a push of the button away.